monsters have been eradicated completely. The crime rate in Britain has actually dropped to zero. It's just like we said. The streets of Britain are safe at last. The employment rate is at a record high. The criminals are all locked up. There's nothing to be afraid of. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Albert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about the 2021 horror film, Censor. Before we get into all that censorious stuff, however, what is going on? Well, lurking just over the horizon, the blasphemous Tome Issue 10 is about to manifest. So this is the fanzine we produce for the lovely backers of the good friends of Jackson Elias. And if you are backing us on Patreon by the end of the month, then you will receive at the very least a PDF. If you're backing us at the $3 level, you'll receive a print-on-demand voucher. And if you're backing us at the $5 level, you will receive a printed copy signed by our fair hands. And I think it's worth noting that if you do back us on Patreon, you get immediate access to seven, count them, seven issues of The Blasphemous Tome on PDF right there. Most of them with a complete Call of Cthulhu scenario written by one of us in them. Uh, so plenty of entertainment to be had there. Now, admittedly, while the stars are almost certainly not right for me and I will not be a dragon meat, I hear Paul will be and that there is things afoot happening Yes, indeed. On Saturday, the 3rd of December, 2022, I'll be at Dragon Meet in London, and I'll be promoting the release of the Rivers of London role-playing game with the author of the series, Ben Aronovich. And speaking of conventions, Matt, you and I are going to a virtual one around the same time. Indeed, yeah. In fact, directly over the top of them, because it's the 2nd to the 4th of December, whereas Dragon Meet's on Saturday the 3rd of December, so that falls right in the middle of our commitments there. But yeah, the Illusion Horrorcon, which I'm very much looking forward to. So I'm running Night Bus at some stage during the convention, and I'm also going to be appearing on a couple of seminars. I'll be on the panel for Game Mastering Horror RPGs, Strategies and Unique Considerations on Friday. Then on the Saturday, I'll also be on a panel about horror inspiration from film, art and other media. That's just going to be like an episode of the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> what about you, Matt? What are you up to? I'm running a game of cult, and I'm also on one of the panels discussing the setting of cult as well. So all loads of cult goodness for me over the weekend. Marvellous. And now on to our main topic, censor. Following on from last episode's discussion on horror censorship and people's extreme reactions to the genre, we thought it'd be interesting to discuss a film that plays with those concepts. Fitting, really. So this is a 
2021 horror film, as we mentioned, uh, written and directed by the Welsh filmmaker Prano Bailey Bond. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. I've never heard it said out loud. And it builds on a 2015 short film she made, Nasty. And when I say builds on, I haven't seen Nasty, but I have read a synopsis of it, and they sound like very different films. But the connection is they're both rooted in the Video Nasty scandal. Censor is set against the backdrop of the video nasty panic, as you just said, Scott, in the 1980s Britain, which we mentioned in the previous episode. While the screenplay is pure fiction, it uses real clips from horror films and news reports of the time to create a sense of verisimilitude alongside a number of wholly fictitious films. And it's really hard to tell which is real and which is fictitious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> The office in which Enid works looks grim and impersonal with everyone smoking because that's what they did back in those days. It really helped the lungs. Oh, uh, yeah. Everything is lifeless and nicotine stained. And when Enid travels to and from work, we only see dark underpasses and overcrowded trains. So like your average walk in Milton Keynes, really. The film really captures the grime and greyness of 1980s Britain. And I'd say it's never really gone away in certain areas either. Hmm. <clears throat> This has got to be a time that you don't really remember, Matt, but it's... I found it fantastic the way that it really did capture the feel of the time, because when you see media these days set in the 1980s, it tends to glamorise the period and there's lots of bright colours and plays very much with pop culture and so on at the time. But... The look and feel of Censor is far more like the 80s Britain I remember. Hmm. Like I said, it hasn't really gone away. I do indeed remember a lot of those feelings, those the aesthetic, even carrying through into my childhood, which admittedly is more the, the early 90s onwards. But yeah, like I said, very much wherever you went in Milton Keynes, it had that feel for me anyway. When I was a young whippersnapper about yay high... The cast of the film includes a number of actors who are better known for comedies, such as Michael Smiley, who you might remember from Spaced, and of course, a, a field in England. Nicholas Burns, who played Nathan Barley on television, and has been in all sorts of other things, and oh. Vincent Franklin, who was in The Thick of It. And one of the executive producers I noticed in the credit was Kim Newman, a horror writer and critic who has written extensively on the films of the period. Oh, I thought I recognised him. Now you say Nathan Barley, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a show that's not going to be broadcast on TV again. <laughs> not in a big hurry. A shame, because I loved it. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's great. But, I've vaguely uh, heard of it, but I can't say I've ever seen it. This is a quote from Prano Bailey Bond. She says... I remember reading somewhere that a film censor driven to protect society is the most dangerous type of censor of all. I think it might have been something David Cronenberg said. And that Cronenberg connection is, I think, pretty apt because there's certainly a bit of Cronenberg influence in this film. So now let's take a closer look at Censor. The film initially looks like degraded video. We then see lurid footage of a crying woman chased through the woodland by something invisible, like the tree rape scene from The Evil Dead. So, yeah, that kind of sets the tone real nice from the outset. 
But it also does something that the film plays with all the way through, which is switching between film stock and aspect ratio and even lighting to reflect this shift between what we're seeing, the characters seeing on screen or perhaps dreaming at times, and what is really happening, and sometimes the blurring line between those. One of my favourite parts of this film was the way that it was so creative with using the medium of video and film in that respect. We pull back from there and we see that this is a film that's being examined by a pair of sensors. Enid, our protagonist, is there pushing for cuts to the film, while her colleague Sanderson is arguing that the context of what they're seeing justifies the violence. Enid is very anxious to make the right decision. And picked up uh, one of the sensors was called uh, Sanderson. I'm suddenly feeling a connection, a very much a like for this person's argument. So I can, I can yeah. see exactly where he's coming from, <laughs> and I approve of the name. At a meeting about a film called Cannibal Carnage, Enid's colleagues ask whether anyone could believe that these images are real. This depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. No one's going to pick this up and think it's a documentary. It's so fake. To you, it might be sausages for intestines, but what if it gets into the hands of children? Exactly. Kids could be rewinding and watching those scenes over and over again. Which is exactly what new government guidelines are pointing at. Video technology is changing guidelines. the rules. More guidelines. Great. Not as if we haven't got enough on our hands. How can we do our job properly if we're constantly bogged down by government bureaucracy? It's the nation's sanity they're worried about. Why don't they stop slashing social services? Okay, I get it. But I'm afraid... We're not here to debate the government. Can we get back on track, please? Consensus on cannibal carnage. Reject. I agree. A few cuts. I'd pass it. But that's something we talked about in the previous episode, mm. whether the images are real. And also, you know, like, I mean, that does matter, but is that the, the key point when they're censoring things? I don't know. Just, uh, you know, thinking back to those video nasties, did we actually see many of those ourselves? You know, there's that big list of about mm. 60 of them that sort of pop up when you do the search for the 1980s video nasties. I mean, I'm guessing, Scott, you've probably seen quite a few of them. I saw a few at the time. I've seen surprisingly few, I guess. When I went through that list, there were an awful lot that I just haven't. And there's a fair number that I've seen in more recent years. At the time, I saw some. So when I was in my late teens, I went to boarding school in England for a little while. And during half terms and long weekends, I used to go off and visit my aunt in Macclesfield. She ran a video store at the time. This would have been uh, 82, 83. So it would have been just before the Video Recordings Act. Basically, she used to let me have the run of the shelves during the time that I was up there, and I'd just basically spend the weekend watching video after video. And I, I kind of jokingly refer to it as my real education, mm. because I think I learned more useful stuff watching those films than I did at school. I saw a fair number of the video nasties at the time then, back before they were certified or banned or pulled off the shelf or cut to pieces. 
they seemed a lot more shocking at the time than they do now. I think it's like with any medium. Over time, there's a distancing effect that comes from just changes in technology, changes in special effects. Just the fact that it's shot on video makes it look unrealistic now, or at least the fact that it's shot cheaply. The lighting, the costumes, the makeup effects and special effects all look unrealistic compared to the more sophisticated stuff we're used to now. And so, while there's perhaps some really nasty stuff in some of them, yeah, I think most of them have lost the shock value that they had when I was, you know, 17, 18 and watching them at the time. Yeah. How many films were on that list, you say? About 60-odd, you say, yeah? I think it's about 50 or 60. It's more complicated than that because there were three lists. I mean, these were put together by the Director of Public Prosecutions and there was categories one, two, and three. Category one, if I remember correctly, you could be prosecuted for having. When I say having, I mean as a video store. If you had this in stock, you were liable to a fine and potentially to imprisonment if you were renting them to people or distributing them. There was Category 2, which was... Non-prosecuted films. Yeah, that's right. They'd still be confiscated, but you wouldn't be prosecuted. And then there was Category 3, which was sort of like a grey area where technically they weren't banned, but I think they'd still be taken away. So in combination, those first two lists you mentioned total 72 films. Yeah. There you go. That's two years of your October horror movie challenge sorted right there. (laughs) I have reviewed a few of them in earlier October horror movie challenges, and some of them are incredibly disappointing. Some of them still stand up nicely, particularly the Fulci films. But, I mean, for example, Anthropophagus, The Beast, I reviewed that several years ago. And that was notorious at the time because of, I think, two scenes of real gore, each of which is like 10 seconds long. The film's about an hour and 40 minutes of unrelenting tedium surrounding those two scenes. Really ropey sets and rubber bats and cheap cobwebs that look like they're out of some kid's Halloween party. And then you've got a bit of gore. And that, to me, I think sums up a fair number of these notorious video nasties. Have you seen many of them, Matt? I haven't seen that many. I could probably count on one hand how many I've seen directly. But I've seen reviews of plenty of them because there's a wonderful YouTube channel called The Horror Geek, hosted by Mike Bracken, who does a very light-hearted a satirical review of the a lot of these films. And yeah, for those of you who haven't come across him, he's a great laugh. Yeah, I think I, when I looked at the list, I think I'd have been seen about seven, seven or eight. Right. That was about it. But... Uh, Bouncing off what Scott said, he's uh, put me in mind now. Given the choice between banning horror films and banning private schools, I'm for the latter. <laughs> <laughs> They're the real problem with society as far as I'm concerned, but uh, yes. But at some point, we really should do a proper episode on the video nasties, just because it is such a fascinating topic. We'll touch on some of that this episode, but there's so much to talk about there. Walking home, Enid stops a woman with long red hair, apparently mistaking her for someone else. That evening, Enid has dinner with her parents. To Enid's dismay, they have had her sister, Nina, declared dead, following her disappearance as a teenager many years before. 
Enid was present when her sister vanished, but doesn't remember what happened. The next day, while Enid's on the train to work, she spots a newspaper headline talking about how video nasties are responsible for the rise in crime, and sort of smiles smugly to herself. When a colleague at work, once she gets there, asks if a particular violent film has affected her, she just shrugs it off and insists that she's focusing on getting it right. And this getting it right aspect of it is at the heart of this film, this idea that Enid is a true believer, that she believes that she is protecting people, protecting society through these acts of censorship. We've sort of touched a little bit on our own attitudes towards censorship, but I mean, is this a job that we could ever see ourselves doing? Given what I've said previously about I try to watch what I would consider quality films, and <laughs> there's a lot of people that are going to complain about Matt's, Matt's taste <laughs> in films right about now. Yeah, I've got one word for you, Matt. Cadaver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah still a great film. But anyway, I try not to waste, or at least what I consider waste my time on bad films, because I've got so little free time. I don't want to be thinking, well, that's two and a half hours of my life that I can't get back. The exact reaction I had to watching films like Inglorious Bastards and other absolute trash like that, or Repulsion. I can't see myself doing that job because the amount of shit that you are going to be forced to consume, thinking, what am I doing with my life? I'll be sat there just crying my eyes out, thinking, why have I made such a bad life decision getting involved in this stuff? Mm. But what about the moral aspects of it? Morals are very down to a personal level. I don't feel like I have to enforce my morals or my, my opinions on anyone. I don't consider myself to have that high ground where I have to dictate to people, it's my way or the highway, I've obviously got the right opinion, you're all wrong. Blah, 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 blah. I'll leave that to politicians, that's what their job is. And also, presumably, if you're doing this job, you're not using your own moral measure so much as adhering to a code that has been laid down to you. The ones making the um, decisions should really be presumably the, the board of censors. You'd think that, but you'd be wrong. There was an interview with one of the former heads of the BBFC, I can't remember which one, where he was talking about the fact that they don't have a set of rules, they don't have a written code. And he figured that this was an important thing, that each film was treated on its own merits, that each film was treated as a sort of moral exercise for the censors who were viewing it and certifying it. Are you talking about in the 80s or now? Not now, no. This was... Well, I'm talking about having a job now. Right. Not in, okay. doing it in the 80s, yeah. When I was talking about a job like this, I was talking specifically about Enid's job. Specifically about going back in time and doing the job in the 80s? Yes. Okay. <laughs> But no, I thought that was an interesting point, that they were <laughs> kind of winging it. Hmm. Enid and Sanderson are called into their boss's office about a film called Deranged. The boss informs them that there has been a murder in which a man ate his wife's face. That's not funny. I don't know why I'm smiling. <laughs> Similar to a scene from the film. A journalist has learned that Enid... <laughs> <laughs> it's less fattening than finger food there's less fat on the bone there yeah <laughs> i mean right okay right serious shit it's like eating a crispy chicken skin mm. you're only making it worse or a very chewy pancake 
A journalist has learned that Enid passed this film and blames her specifically for the murder. The press has dubbed the murderer the amnesiac killer, as he cannot apparently remember the killing. This is kind of coming up again about people not remembering stuff. Yes. Now, unlike a lot of the other films mentioned in Censor, Deranged is a real film. It's an American film from 1974 about everybody's favourite guy, Ed Gein. Yes. Who knew something about eating faces. Hmm. Or at least peeling them off. Yeah, he tends to make lampshades out of them. Well, have you seen the price of lampshades? They're bloody expensive. <laughs> Light fittings, mad. And say what you like about Ed Gein, but he was ahead of the curve when it came to recycling. Ahead. <laughs> also, just to bounce back to the previous question, which I didn't answer, would I... Oh, I did answer in a sort of weird way. Would I consider myself doing a job like this as a film censor? No, because I'd have to watch more films like censor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we're beginning to get your opinion on it. Yeah. I was going to say, Paul's already uh, put his flag up as to which camp he's in regarding this, uh, <laughs> regarding whether you liked it or not. <laughs> but anyway, Enid starts getting phone calls at home from angry strangers, also blaming her for the murder. Entering the office the next morning, Enid has to pass through a crowd of reporters. Colleagues tell her, we all make mistakes. But Enid insists she is responsible for her decisions. You know, this comes at a weird time, because bizarrely, as a random aside, I had a really strange phone call the, uh, yesterday. Oh, you did? Oh. To your home phone or to your, like, mobile? Do you use your home phone? I don't know. This is well, partly where it was strange. It's the home phone, which mm. is bizarre because no one has the number for it. I can't even remember the number for it because we don't use it. We've uh, finally trained the rest of our family and anyone else that knows us to call the mobile. Yeah, likewise. I think we went out for about half an hour and came back. And then about six hours later, it was actually just as I was getting ready for bed, I went downstairs and noticed the light flashing on the answering machine and turned it on and it was like listening to something off of a number station recording there was a whole uh, second of beep, boop, 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 as if i'd listened in like to an auto dialer then heavy breathing a bit more of beep, boop, 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 boop. and then finally someone saying this menacing voice like eight seven and then it hung up like <laughs> weird damn <laughs> they're trying to communicate with you matt <laughs> they're here <laughs> your life is just full of scenario inspiration matt yeah you can't waste this stuff admittedly it did kind of scare me a bit listening to this thing with just the, the tone of that voice but I think yeah that there has to be a scenario in here somewhere this is why i never answer my phone <laughs> but anyway, how much of this outpouring of anger going back to enid do we think is real and how much is enid's guilt I've had the situation at work where I've, I'd say, made mistakes and it could potentially have had a big impact. But I don't have journalists turning up and uh, berating me for anything <laughs> I've done. I think there's uh, maybe a bit of hyperbole here. I did wonder whether any of the phone calls in this were meant to be real. And there's a moment that comes up a bit later where one of the callers repeats a line from a film that Dean has just watched that seems to indicate that this is just her hallucinating all this. This is her conscience attacking her or her guilt attacking her. Mm. Doug Smart, a film producer, comes in for a meeting with Enid's boss. He introduces himself to Enid, flirtatiously suggesting that she appear in one of his films. 
He then specifically says that she should watch a film that will be submitting soon by Frederick North. Name drop. Bing. What did you think about that? It was quite a way to introduce the character as, you are one sleazy asshole." That was the takeaway <laughs> moment I got from that. I mean, it's kind of a cheap joke on Fred West, right? Uh, I hadn't actually picked that up until you said it. Oh, really? Okay. That just jumped out. I kind of thought it was bad taste. I don't really see that. What? Fred North, Fred West? I see it with the name, but outside of the name, there's not really any similarity, is there? It's not like Fred West made films. It's also to me that there is a certain immediate disconnect that there's Frederick versus Fred. If anything, Frederick to me immediately makes me think of Frederick Forsyth, not a serial killer who's great at patio laying. It's two very different things that it conjures up in my head. Hmm. Okay, I, I don't think there can be any doubt that's a reference to Fred West. I think. Yeah. I think misplaced black humour, I think. but Because, um, I mean, he is kind of portrayed as in her mind at least, as actually committing murders later in the film. That's what she thinks, right? It's certainly what she suspects him of, but... Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm surprised that you didn't... No, I, I really don't see that. You didn't think that? I'm really surprised. Okay, yeah. I thought it was a an obvious reference, but yeah. Because at one point she does call him Fred. Um this film that's being referred to is titled Don't Go in the Church. Enid jokes, there won't be many places left for us to go soon. It opens with two teenage girls encountering a creepy old shack in the woods. The older girl talks to the younger into summoning my shadow by spinning three times. Enid sees this girl as Nina for a moment. The older girl then dares her to go into the shack. And this is very, image-wise, I thought very reminiscent of Twin Peaks, mm. of it being at night in the woods. And mm. there's kind of a, it's a shack, but it, you know, it's not a million miles from the um, old railway carriage. And there's a figure that's, it's not quite like Bob, but, you know, it could be Bob. So we've got a kind of Twin Peaks look going on here, I thought. Yeah, the films, or rather the owls, are not what they seem. But it's also a bit Evil Dead as well, with the, the shack in the woods. Mm. There are a lot of Evil Dead references all the way through this. <laughs> but that joke about there won't be many places left for us to go, I did then go back and check the list of video nasties. And sure enough, there's don't go in the woods, don't go in the house, don't go near the park, don't look in the basement, and don't answer the phone. So, yeah, there does seem to be a bit of a pattern here, and so much so that, do you remember the Grindhouse double bill that uh, Robert mm. Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino did had these fake trailers in there? Yeah, possibly the best part of the double bill. There was this one trailer in there that was done by Edgar Wright that was just called Don't. <laughs> I mean, that list of don'ts you just listed, don't go in the basement, don't go in the yeah, whatever. That's pretty good advice for any Call of Cthulhu investigator, I'd say. <laughs> or just general, you know, life in general. Yeah. Don't answer the phone, don't read the book, don't leave the house. Promoted everywhere as the guide to safety by the Theron Mark Society. Yes. <laughs> Enid grows anxious as she watches. The older girl picks up an axe and follows her sister in, chopping her into pieces before apparently turning into an adult man. As you do. Enid runs to the bathroom and vomits. 
Yeah, and then in conversation with a male colleague afterwards, this kind of oddly flirtatious conversation where he's trying to obviously build up to asking her out and she's just either oblivious or shutting him down. She just counters the flirtation by asking him why the amnesiac killer can't seem to remember the murder he's accused of. The clue's in the name. Amnesia. Yeah, but that's a description, not an explanation. But all of this, particularly in his reaction in the previous scene, and a lot of what we see after this, is a reflection of the question that's at the core of this film. I'd say the, the entire point of it, which is, if we accept the idea that horror is dangerous and has this corrosive effect, this corrupting effect, then what does that say about about the people who censor it. If it's that dangerous, are they safe from it? What does all the exposure to them do? I could see them saying, we take this bullet so you don't have to. But the point is that a lot of it is predicated upon the fear that, or the fears that we talked about in the last episode, that horror will morally corrupt you, drive you mad, drive you to acts of violence and brutality. Either that's not true, or censors are just these incredibly special people who are somehow immune to that going back to the jake west documentary that we mentioned in the previous episode there was a lovely little th almost throwaway comment that was made in there that made me chuckle which was that when they were compiling the list of banned films you had or when they were seizing videos you had all these police officers across the country which were going through all this videotape which took ages <laughs> yes. basically that was their job to sit down and watch horror films and they loved it <laughs> I was thinking, that's easier than going out and mugging some drug dealer on the streets or chasing down some handbag snatcher. Now we're going to sit down with a bucket of popcorn and watch people getting sliced up. Yeah. <laughs> but the point of that scene about the amnesiac killer is surely that it's made her question herself about the disappearance of her sister because we know that she's with her sister when her sister went missing. Oh, sure. And is she forgetting something key about the death of her sister in fact did she kill her sister you know that's that's yes. what's in her head isn't it that's what she's that's what she's fearing absolutely but at the same time she had this profoundly violent reaction to the film and has talked about the importance of protecting people from the stuff mm. that's in these films I mean, the film is obviously about more than one thing, but that, yeah, there is that strand of it, which is who gets to pass these judgments, what kinds of people pass these judgments, and what drives them to do so. And she's clearly an eminently bad fit for this job. Absolutely, yeah. So that night, Enid has a dream about a TV showing static, which is, again, something we don't see nowadays. Mm. TVs don't show static. They're just the blank screen or they're very rarely not broadcasting but when they <laughs> yes. are broadcasting we don't get that static anymore that uh, we used to get i never thought i'd be nostalgic for static but anyway this changes from static to woods at nighttime with teenage enid standing outside the shack from the film the bestial man prowls through the woods behind her the dream comes back to an adult enid in the house encountering her mother who badly acts, screaming, it's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> More commentary there, planting that flag firmly oh, in the ground. Sorry, it was, it was very bad. 
There's a few bits of really bad acting in this film, but uh, anyway, carry on. Yeah. Back at work, there's the true horror, back in the real world, nine to five. Enid asks the archivist for information on Frederick North, but there is none available. Heading home, Enid stops off at a video shop. There's a poster in the window for Beast Man, apparently the man she had been dreaming about. When we say that there's no information about Frederick North, there's none either that's readily available or none that the archivist mm. can lay her hands on quickly. I mean, she talks about how it's going to take at least a week to get anything because Enid can't name any of uh, Frederick North's films. This is a prime example of when you completely botch your library use role back before the days of Google. Yes. So they're in the video store. Enid picks up and examines the cover, this colourful cover of this really cheerful-looking film called The Day the World Began, which has got this picture of a suburban landscape that looks really quite idyllic, somehow despite being suburban. And while she's doing this, a woman comes in and she overhears a conversation between this, this woman and the shop owner, where she's returning what is obviously an under-the-counter horror video. And so Enid uses this as the opportunity to ask the owner whether he has any films by Frederick North. This took me right back, this whole thing with under-the-counter horror videos. Again, I guess this is before your time, Matt. But is this a, an aspect of horror fandom that you had any exposure to, Paul? Not like in the video store, but... Um... I did have a colleague at work, the art therapist at Doncaster Hospital, who lent me a copy of Clockwork Orange <laughs> to watch when it was still banned in the very early 90s. That's probably the, the one that I, would, uh, that I would recall. There was this whole subculture that was built around swapping illicit horror films in the 80s and 90s. And I, I remember trading tapes with friends and there was this whole thing where the producers of video recorders put in technology that would try to deliberately degrade the signal if you were dubbing between tape recorders to try to cut down on piracy. And so people had all sorts of gadgets that used to boost the signal again to try to get around this. But it did mean that you ended up with an awful lot of really ropey copies. But it just became this whole illicit trade in either films that had been banned or uncut versions of ones that had been absolutely butchered by the BBFC. Because the BBFC, when they were cutting these films back in those days, if one was lucky enough to get a release, they were cut several minutes out of some of them with no care for leaving a coherent film behind. So you'd get scenes that would suddenly jump forward several minutes and you weren't quite sure what had happened, but you know, you'd been saved from all the bad stuff. I remember doing things like going around the markets in Camden and there was a, a stall there that I used to go to fairly regularly that used to do a fantastic trade in under-the-counter duplications of films that they brought in from the Netherlands. It was about the only way to see a lot of these films at the time. The video store owner is nervous as Enid isn't a regular, but eventually he relents and hands her a copy of Asunder, warning her that it's a ropey copy that someone has taped over with the end of another film. And this is another thing you used to get with VHS mm. films. Yeah. Just a bunch of snooker. <laughs> Oh, there's the real horror. It's just, yeah, seeing Steve Davis's lifeless eyes as he goes, lines up to take another shot. God, oh, the horror. 
Enid takes a sunder home and watches it. A man reads Latin text from a forbidden tome aloud, kind of in the style of Evil Dead. Ka-ching! We should have a little uh, counter-running of how many <laughs> Evil Dead references we can get in. The female lead, who has red hair, warns, the evil is contagious. And the cover of Asunder identifies this actress as Alice Lee. Enid that night visits her parents and says that she believes that Alice Lee is really Nina. Her dad complains that Enid keeps coming up with all these crackpot theories like this and explains that this is why they had to have Nina declared dead to put all this to rest. Well, that worked. Enid dreams of the woodland shack again, lit like a horror film. In the dream, teenage Nina turns into Alice Lee. The beast man lurks in the doorway behind her. Alice goes into the shack and young Enid follows. We cut to Enid, still in the same red light, examining a reel of Don't Go In The Church. The barrier between dreams and reality is breaking down. Late one night, Enid turns up at Doug Smart's house. He's nervous as he's been harassed by people who don't like his films, but he invites her in. She recognises his office as the set of the rape scene from a film she viewed earlier. That's got a atypical of uh, a lot of the budget horror films of the time using very, very cheap sets. <laughs> Enid sees this, this headshot of Alice Lee sitting around and asks Smart if she and Enid look alike. Smart says that he guesses they do. They then discuss Don't Go to the Church, and Smart mentions that North had specifically requested that Enid be the person who viewed it. Smart mentions that North is shooting a sequel involving the Beast Man in the same woodlands. Alice Lee is in it, although this will be her last film. She is coming to the end of her shelf life. <laughs> it kind of sounds sinister. I mean, what she should have said was, no, Mr. Smart, I believe you are coming to the end of your shelf life. Because <laughs> as we're about to see. Anyway, yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of a little macabre comment, I thought. I mean, what do you make of it? I took it to be Enid's interpretation of it as being sinister. Well, yeah. it was actually sinister in other ways, in that it was a comment on the short shelf life of a lot of actresses' careers, particularly at the time, that mm. you know, as soon as they hit 30 or whatever, that's it, they're over the hill, shunt them off and, and get someone else in instead. You are no longer young enough to be a scream queen. Yeah. But it's been interesting seeing how some of the actresses at the time have managed to maintain their careers or resurrect them in recent years. I mean, obviously Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is a big one there, but um, Barbara Crampton has mm. really kick-started her career again. She's in her 60s now and she is producing, I'd say, far more interesting films on the whole than she did back in the 80s. Although it's tough to top reanimator and from beyond. I've seen quite a few films where her uh, presence has uh, come up. It's like Beyond the Door, I think, was a, a wonderfully evocative 80s kind of homage to horror flicks. Yeah, well, I saw her last year. In fact, I wrote a review for the October Horror Movie Challenge. Uh, she was in a film called Jacob's Wife, which I thought was just phenomenal. One of the best films I saw last year. Enid wants to know what this means. 
but Smart is more interested in making advances. The sleaze meter gets dialed up to 11 here. <laughs> yeah. When Enid rebuffs him, he calls her a prick tease and the two tussle. Smart falls and the horror movie award pierces his head. A righteous kill there. Uh, coming out of his mouth. Oh, uh, yeah. This is the definitely the best bit of the film so far. <laughs> <laughs> this is when I looked up and I'm like, oh yeah. Something's happening. Wow. There we go. Yes. He drowns in his own blood, and Enid says she'll see herself out. That's almost kind of uh, action movie one-liner, like, I'll be back. Or in <laughs> this case, I'll go. <laughs> I won't be back. But I think the lack of effect, as she said, it made it a bit more sinister than an action movie line. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this award was one that he was showing off a bit earlier, and yeah, is this sort of metal statuette of someone swinging an axe, which seems kind of appropriate for what we're going to see a bit later. Back at home again, Enid continues getting these threatening phone calls, and one of them echoes that line, the evil is contagious. This is what I was saying earlier about how these seem to be manifestations of her own guilt, because that is very definitely a line from the film that she was viewing earlier mm. from Asunder. As Enid's behaviour grows erratic, her colleagues worry that she's losing the plot. Despite the archivist's protestations, Enid searches the records, finding a letter with North's address. As Enid walks out, she overhears two colleagues discussing a news report that the amnesiac killer had never even seen Deranged. Despite this, there is still a mob of reporters waiting as she leaves. This really brought me back to the tragic case of James Bolger. In 1993, there was this horrible case where these two 10-year-old boys kidnapped this two-year-old from a shopping centre and took him off and murdered him. It obviously became a huge news story in the UK. And as we sort of touched upon last episode, people love to find reasons why stuff like this happens. Nice, easy reasons, things that they can blame. And the blame for this ended up landing squarely at the feet of, of all things, Child's Play 3 which became notorious in the UK for a short while and led to a sort of mini version of the Video Nasties uh, scandal coming up again 10 years later, just as it was dying down a bit, as people were suddenly calling for horror films to be banned again because clearly it was leading to child murder. It came out a bit later that the killers had never seen Charles play three. That, that, yes, there had been a copy in the house and the parents of one of them had watched it, but the kids hadn't. Yet that apparently wasn't enough reason to stop the attacks against the film. I guess this has to be a direct reference to that. Hmm. Video footage of the familiar woodlands turns into Enid driving through the woods at night. She arrives at a trailer in a clearing. Getting out of her car, she hears screaming from the woods. So just like an average woodland then. One of the crew, Debbie, comes out of the trailer and mistakes Enid for Alice, telling her that she's late. Debbie takes Enid into the trailer for her makeup and costume, getting her to put on this rather old-fashioned white dress. 
While this is going on, Enid spots a tabloid lying on the makeup counter. It's headline accusing Enid personally, showing a picture of her going into that video store earlier, and accusing her of having a, quote, video nasty habit, unquote. A runner comes to the trailer to fetch Enid to the shoot, and mentions in passing that the producer, our late Mr. Smart, has, for some reason, not turned up which is apparently out of character because he does love watching the gory scenes. Who would have thought being dead would stop him? Spattered with stage blood, Enid walks through the woods to the set. There she meets North. She asks him where the idea for Don't Go in the Church came from. North says the murder scene was inspired by a true story. Enid protests that it didn't happen that way. That's a big moment, isn't it? (laughs) North tells Enid... People think that I create the horror, but I don't. Horror is already out there in all of us. It's in you. You can just imagine that kind of National Lottery pointing, it's you, (laughs) moment that should have happened there. He urges her to access her darkest impulses. Enid insists she has none. (laughs) Bullshit. When Enid begs to see her sister, North takes this for an improvisation and films her. Come, enter your story. So is there anything going on here besides Enid being completely deluded? I see this whole film just as Enid's unreliable narration. I don't know how much of what we're seeing here from North is meant to be real. This whole thing about how he specifically asked for her to be the one to certify don't go in the church and how he's drawing all these things out of her here. Given the the other stuff we're seeing with the phone calls and so on, I'm sort of inclined to see this as just all parts of uh, Enid's delusions. This was the most confusing part of the film for me, that I wasn't sure what was real, what wasn't, and it was Mm. kind of a, a confusing mess, really. It would have been nice to have something that helped to demark it a bit better, and to Mm. show what was what was what. But that's just my taste. I can see very much from yours, you're going to say, no, I like how it blurs it and you're not too sure and it's down to interpretation and all that. But that's not for me. I thought that when she was turning up, I thought it was a case of mistaken identity between her and that woman that gets out of the the caravan and comes over to her. I thought she was, the idea was that she was being mistaken for her sister. You know, when they put the white dress on her and put the makeup on, I thought they were thinking, you know, because the point is, she's supposed to look like this other actress because she's her sister. I thought it was a case of mistaken identity. That was the way I was reading it at first. No, I, I disagree wholeheartedly. I mean, there's no way Alice is her sister. She's definitely not. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that Enid killed her sister back when they were both teenagers and has been repressing the memory ever since and is coming up in all these ways. I think, as her parents have stated, that she's fixated on various things, various solutions, various explanations to what happened to Nina and has decided that this Alice is Nina and this is just like the latest in a long line of these things. But Alice is nothing to do with all this. Alice is just, you know, what Enid has locked onto at this stage. Yeah, no, Alice clearly isn't actually her sister. I didn't mean that. I meant that there was enough of a resemblance that they, they were putting forward the idea that it was a case of mistaken identity. That's what I thought, anyway. No, I, I, I see where you're coming from. 
So when you say her sister, you mean the character rather than yeah, Nina. yeah, the right. uh, other oh, character in the film that she oh right, gotcha, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, they they very obviously mistaken her for Alice initially because she turns up like she's supposed to be there, and that I when you do that sometimes people think you are the person, you know, so, right, yeah, okay. We then move from there to watching the footage of the film that they're they're actually making as if we're the audience of that film. Enid picks up an axe from outside, like we saw in Don't Go in the Church, and enters the cabin. The beast man is there waiting inside, and instead of attacking her, he just embraces her and says that he's been waiting for her. When Enid prepares to swing the axe at the beast man, he drags the screaming Alice in front of him. He tells Enid that there is something rotten inside her and to stop fighting. Enid strikes the beast man with the axe. He protests, as you do when you get hit by an axe, that this is not <laughs> in the script. Um, he collapses back into the television set, smashing it. The rather vaginal wound in his chest opens wide. A mouth inside proclaims, I am the horror. And Enid chops away like Lizzie Borden gone crazy. And then North cries out cut and asks i think quite reasonably what the fuck is going on he looks down at the beast man's chopped up body and just asks in a tremendous voice uh, charles alice cries out in terror and the cameraman turns away and vomits enid screams at north telling him this is all your fault just as her mother did earlier in her dream before swinging the axe round and cutting his head off with the axe that implies she is remarkably strong. I've wielded an axe and you can't do that normally. <laughs> just a good roll, Matt. Yeah, you just ah. had a very weak neck. Uh, yeah, it's a good wood axe, that's 1d8 damage. Not yeah. much damage bonus though, but you know, it can, it can impale, I guess. So, you know, with a critical. Yeah, she rolled 01 on her attack. Oh well. Yeah, I think we've proven beyond all doubt now that it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> Enid chases the terrified Alice through the woods, eventually catching her. When Enid tells Alice that she's her sister, Alice only says, You killed Charles! Enid tells Alice she was protecting her, but Alice thinks Enid means from the character of the Beast Man. No, no, he's going to hurt you. <laughs> he was my friend. No, everything that I have done is to protect you. All right, to make things right. <laughs> You're insane. No, please. Ah, please, 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 please. Enid breaks down, repeating, you have to be her. Ah, oh, well, sucks. We don't all get what we want. <laughs> Indeed. Instead of the axe, Enid finds the controller from her work video deck in her hand. She presses stop and the lighting changes. Alice comes out of the light, smiling. She takes Enid by the hand, promising to take her home. The woods are in daylight now and filled with birdsong as the two women run hand in hand. And yet this is full on bloody delusion right from here on. The two of them get into Enid's car and drive off. A broadcast they pick up on the car radio announces that now video nasties have been eradicated, the crime rate in Britain has dropped to zero. 
The film flickers for a moment, and we glimpse Alice screaming. Then it all returns to normal, as the radio says, there is nothing to be afraid of. And this whole idea of the crime rate being linked to video nasties was very prevalent at the time, and that book that I mentioned last time, A Nervous Person's Guide to Horror Films, does make the point that there does actually seem to be a negative correlation between crime rates and the number of uh, horror movies on distribution. Now, correlation is not causation, and there's probably all sorts of other reasons for that. But it, it is amusing that the very opposite seems to be true. Did it compare the number of murders and crimes with the number of romantic comedies issued at that time? That would be a more interesting statistic to me. I imagine that it would be the same ratio because horror films as a percentage of the overall films being released tends to be fairly constant. It tends to be about 10% of horror films. So where you get these peaks, it tends to be because there are a lot of all kinds of films being made. So yes, there probably would have been more romantic comedies and maybe people were too busy watching them to chop people up. Well, I'm glad you started that sentence with, I imagine, Scott, because that's reassured me no end. <laughs> when I want facts, I'll turn to your imagination. <laughs> they drive into a bright suburb where they are welcomed by Enid's smiling parents standing on the lawn. Alice stroke Nina runs to meet her parents, or Enid's parents, the parents anyway, stood on the lawn. The scene echoes the cover of the video we saw Enid holding in the shop, the one about... Uh, I don't know, wonderful life in suburbia or something. The day the world began? Yes. The image crackles and breaks up again, showing us fragments of Alice screaming, help me, as Enid's parents cry out in terror. Enid's blissful delusion triumphs, however, as she laughs into the camera. The video we're watching ejects. It's label reading. Censor. I just found that whole visual, particularly of that interspersed of her screaming at the camera, was actually my favourite part of the whole film. So the last few moments is the best bit for me. <laughs> Matt, you in particular, as the one of us who doesn't remember the 80s as much as Paul and I do, how did this land with you? There were certain bits that I think carried over into the 90s. It wasn't just a whole, as soon as it hits 1st of January 1990, all the colour <laughs> returns to the world and, and so on. The videotapes weren't a thing. No, but it was the whole thing about the video nasties, furore, which you would have been too young to remember at the mm -hmm. time. There were elements of films being banned that were talked about, which Evan, I do remember being a thing that got talked about. Like I mentioned, I think in the previous episode about the zombie flesh eaters getting its premiere on uh, Channel 4 late one night and me staying up to watch it. It definitely was there, but it just wasn't as pronounced. It wasn't as in the foreground. But no, it, it certainly struck a bit of a nostalgic note for me. Not as maybe as a, a resounding chorus that it would have been for you, but maybe a single note for me. Well, what did you make of it, Scott? You the first time I saw it earlier this year, I flagged it as one that I wanted to talk on the podcast, not because I particularly liked it. I thought it was an interesting film. I didn't love it. But I thought that there was enough there that we could use as springboards to talk about other things, that it was an interesting topic for an episode. When I went back to watch it again, to actually do the synopsis and spent a lot more time thinking about it and examining the way the film worked, I liked it a lot more. 
it's rare for me to enjoy a film a lot more on the second viewing the way that this happened. But I went from being lukewarm on it to... I still wouldn't say I loved it, but I found it a much more interesting film the second time round. Particularly the way that it told its story visually, as well as the actual script. The way that it used lighting and um, changes in film stock and aspect ratio and as well as the other aspects that I talked about before with the way it presented the 80s and the whole milieu of the, the video nasty scandal. I thought all those elements came together very nicely. I, as a horror film, I mean, it's not a scary horror film by any means and... A lot of the elements in this are quite derivative. I mean, it does borrow a fair bit from Cronenberg and from any number of other films. But considering the kind of film it is and what it's trying to do, the fact that it does borrow from other films is perhaps appropriate. As I say, I think I, I find it a much more interesting film than necessarily a an enjoyable one. But yeah, I still say I, I rather like it. You seem to hate it, Paul. I don't know. There were parts of it I enjoyed. Um, I thought whoever's made it clearly uh, watched Barbarian Sound Studio. I thought it owed quite <laughs> a lot to that. But I'd say really the end kind of left a bad taste in my mouth because it very much seemed like there's a woman with mental health problems who ends up chopping up people with an axe. Great. I don't think that that's what the point of the film was. I think... Well, it might not be the point, but that's what happens. Hmm, no. I, Which I find, I don't, I, don't, I don't find that a very pleasurable message, really. Well, not message, but, you know, portrayal. You can look at that from a number of perspectives. One is from an entirely metaphorical perspective. You have this woman whose job it is to chop up films, and in the end she resolves her problems with this film that's being made by very literally chopping up the actor and the director as kind of the ultimate act of censorship there. You also have the fact that this is clearly an unreliable narrator, so the very end makes that absolutely explicit and, you know, is very much in place before then. And so I don't know how much of what happened there we can take as real because the way the murders in the shack are betrayed is entirely unrealistic as you said before matt with the head being cut off i mean that's clearly not possible with the talking wound in the man's chest with the way he collapsed it into that mm. television set and so on is clearly not meant to be real well it's clear that she can't distinguish between what's real and what's not i think at the end there where we're seeing it flicking between her delusion and reality so in her delusion she's seeing her sister stood there with her parents being reunified and it's all great and she's made everything wonderful and then we see it flicking to reality and there's the woman who's in abject terror of her because you know she's blood spattered because she's just killed people mm. But at the same time, it's also very much about, as we said with that quote at the beginning, what kind of person is driven to try to protect others or to try to censor films out of a, a, a sense of civic duty, as Enid seems to be in this film. A big part of the, the story seems to be that, yes, there is this 
trauma from her teenage years where something happened to her sister where maybe she killed her sister maybe something else happened but either way she feels incredibly guilty about it and has repressed mm. the memories and so on and has then taken it upon herself to try to protect the world from I guess the horrors that maybe she sees within herself because we get that whole thing later about you know the horrors within you that this is what drives her as a censor. And yeah, I really like that. Yeah, I very much took it that she didn't kill her sister. Because I mean, if, if she had been, she was like, her sister was seven, she was probably like a few years older. If she had killed her, if we're talking real world, they'd have found evidence. Hmm. So it seems pretty clear if we're taking that as a real event that, you know, her sister was abducted and was never seen again. But she feels like a, a great weight of guilt that she was there and didn't, you know, wasn't able to to save her sister. The reason why I keep going back to the idea that she may have killed her sister is just simply that recurring motif of the older girl following the younger one into the shack, picking up an axe on the way, which seems to hint at that. But that as you say, could just be a reflection of her her guilt and the fact that she sees herself as being responsible for what happened to Nina, even if she wasn't. Yeah. Or even just foreshadowing the cutting up of the film at the end, as you put it, mm -hmm. the uh, severing of the director and actor. There's numerous ways to read it. Yeah, and again, that's one of the things I like about it. Hmm. I think it's an interesting approach to critiquing horror film censorship. I think the big takeaway for me, and I love visuals, and as we've discussed previously, when I'm particularly looking at scenarios and thinking of how to structure stories and how they will play out at the game table, I have quite a visual approach to that, thinking of describing scenes, describing particular moments and set pieces. And that image of, of flicking between wonderful, happy suburbia, terrified screaming woman, is an amazingly powerful visual for me. Hmm. And I think particularly in something like a context of cult, that's almost like seeing through the illusion, seeing the yeah. blissful ignorance of the world and then the true horror that underlies that. And that was the, the big takeaway for me from that, is that I could potentially use those that kind of juxtaposition as sudden real shocking, jarring moments to throw into games like cult, where there is a very definite difference between what you see and what is really there. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to James Holden. I'm guessing not that one. Thank you very much, James. Okay, I don't know any other James Holden. The Expanse. Oh, of course, right, yeah. And also thank you much to Adam Drucko. Hopefully I'll pronounce your name right there. And thank you very much to Jimmy Stauff. And thanks to Robert Compton. And thank you much to Ed Byron. And thank you very much to the singular Andrew. And finally, thank you to John Hagen. 
And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lice, we would love it if you told people whether this means leaving a review somewhere where you can leave reviews or putting a post on social media somewhere where people who are interested in this kind of thing might find it or just i don't know perhaps find an old video cassette and just dub over the end of that horror film with a little plug for the good friends however you do it we'll be happy Funnily enough, I was just about to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> just find that old VHS that you're circulating between no, that close circuit of friends that passes them under the counter and just yeah, wipe at the end, but no. Just remember to put some sellotape over the tabs before you do so. Uh, definitely bringing back my childhood there. <laughs> okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.